There was a moment a few years ago where I briefly decided that I wanted to learn how to skateboard. And so my first attempt at learning how to do this was I was trying to learn how to drop in, which if it's been a while since you've been on a skateboard, um, what dropping in is, is you stop, start at the top of a ramp, right? And you're kind of balancing on the edge and you put your foot down and you just ride the ramp down. Um, and to some that might seem like it's easy, but it is pretty complicated. You got to fully commit as you're going down and you have to balance just right. And if you don't do it just right, you're going to fall on your face. Or if you don't put enough weight on it, then you're going to fall backwards. And so for several hours, that's what I did is I just fell over and over again as I tried going down this ramp. And I bumped my head and bruised my elbows and ripped up my jeans. And after several hours, finally something just clicked and I got it. Because I could do it every now and then, but then I started doing it consistently. Now I was falling less and less, and then eventually I wasn't falling at all. And I was just doing it. After all of these hours of falling, I'd finally figured out how to drop in. And after that moment, I had a big realization. I thought, you know, I don't think skateboarding's worth it. Because that was a lot of hours of pain. It was a lot of suffering. And now I finally did it, and uh, that's kind of it. I don't feel like it was that fun now that I'm able to do it. And so that was the last time that I ever got on a skateboard um, because I just decided, you know, if I'm going to learn how to do this, I'm going to have to spend a lot more hours following like I just did to learn how to do something else. And now that I've done this, this wasn't worth it, so I'm just going to call it quits here. Now, every day we make decisions like that, maybe not on skateboarding, but we decide what, what are things worth? Is this worth it for me to, to do? We do it with small things. Is it worth it for me to have that second donut based on how I know I'm going to feel afterwards? And we kind of make these assumptions. But there are more serious things that we decide based on what they're worth. And the most important thing that we can decide is, is it worth it to follow God or not? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus? We know we're going to take bumps and bruises along the way, but do we believe that it is worth it. So this morning, we're going to look at a well-known story in the book of Daniel. Um, in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to hear the story of three men, really four men, in the fiery furnace. And really, this story is about the fact that it is worth it to follow God. And so this morning, we're going to look at really three reasons why I believe that God is worth following. And not just that I believe it, I think that this text is trying to show us. Um, so if you are able, if you would stand um, as we read from God's Word in Daniel chapter 3, our text this morning. Now King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. And he set it up on a plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officers of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that whenever you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every type of music, that you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
And therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every piece of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Well, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, Didn't we throw three men bound in the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But, but I see four men unbound. And they're walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. Then Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together. And they saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. And the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies, rather than to serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be to you. It has seemed to me good to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. For how great are His signs and how mighty His wonders, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom.'" 
and His dominion endures from generation to generation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's Word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that You would be here this morning. Lord, would You speak to us? And Lord, if there's anything good that I've written down from You, Lord, would that come out and be heard? If there's stuff that's about to come out of my mouth that's not from You and isn't reflected in Your Word, let it be forgotten out of my mind and out of the ears of those who listen. Help us to hear from Your Word this morning. We pray this in Your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So the first, our first point that we have, or one of the first reasons that it's worth following God, is, is really that it's worth following God even when it's unpopular. And even when it's unpopular, it's worth it to follow God. And our story opens I'm with the king of Babylon making something. Right, right away in verse 1, he makes an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits, and he sets it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, if you don't know how big cubits are, because we don't usually use that, right? We don't like the metric system, let alone whatever system they were using back then to measure things. But this is about 10 stories tall and about 9 feet wide. So this is a massive, massive image. This is bigger, about the size of those big flags, you know, on Camelback that we can see from a long way off. Tried to look up how tall they are, I don't know. So if they're 10 stories, it's about that big. That's kind of a helpful way for reference for me in thinking about it. And so he builds this massive statue and he invites and really commands everyone to come and to worship it and to, to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then this command goes out in verse 4 and a herald is going around proclaiming, running through the kingdom, telling everyone, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. That's everybody. Every nation, every people, every language that's around in their empire. Whenever you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyres, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever doesn't fall down is cast in a burning, fiery furnace. Now, we don't know what all of those instruments really are. That's our best attempt at translating them. It doesn't necessarily mean they had bagpipes necessarily, but we just know they had tons of instruments and every kind of instrument is together in one massive orchestra and they're all playing. And when you hear that music playing, it's time to bow or it's time to burn. Those are your options. So we may wonder, first off, well, why is Nebuchadnezzar building this? Why are people having to worship it? Like, this is very weird and bizarre. What's, what's going on here? Well, if you remember last week in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a massive image, right? Or a statue made of all these different metals, and it's representing the different kingdoms, and ultimately it's smashed by the rock that is God's kingdom that's going to come. But the top of the statue, the head of it is gold, and Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, the gold represents you in Babylon, but after you there's plenty of nations that are to come. Well, it kind of looks like Nebuchadnezzar, though he was bothered by it before, he really forgot the lesson of his vision. It seems like he's actually building the statue from his vision, except this time it's all gold. He says, oh, okay, well, a rock's going to come or there's other nations. No, you know what? This whole thing is going to be gold. It's all about me. It seems like that's what he's doing. And if it is, if it's a statue and not just an image, then I'm sure that his face is on the front if it wasn't on the dream. And so what he does is he commands everyone to worship and honor this monument to his own greatness, to his empire's greatness. So really when they're bowing down and worshiping this rock, they're bowing down and worshiping him. And a failure to bow down and worship it is a failure to worship Nebuchadnezzar. 
And so in front of this image, they're all told to fall down and to worship. And did you notice who was all there? It repeated it twice. There's a lot of repetition in this passage. Well, that repetition's important. It's there. It's not just because we might say, oh, Daniel's a bad writer. Maybe God's Word has some mistakes. They copy-pasted too many times. No, no, no. It's there intentionally. God knows what He's doing. And He's repeating all of those names so you realize who everyone and what everyone there is doing. So all of these people, all of the governors and the satraps and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all of the officials, everybody who's anybody in Babylon is there. All of them. And they're all, what are they doing? All of them are falling down on their face. And really what an incredible sight visually this would be to see. To see thousands of people gathered around in a field, centered around this one statue, and music plays, and all at once, all of them in a wave fall down. If you could film it, or if you could be up high on a tower looking out on it, it would be impressive and quite a magnificent sight. And so all of those people bend and fall on their faces, or they bend their knees, except for three men who don't. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, only these three men remain standing while everyone else bows down. Can you imagine the pressure in that moment? There's plenty of pressure when you're in a massive crowd. If everyone starts going one way, you might just start going with them. Well, I don't know. Everyone seems to be going that way, so I'm just going to trust them for a bit till we figure out what's going on. If everybody, you're in a massive crowd and everyone ducks, you're probably going to duck too. Wait, why are we ducking? I don't know, but everyone's doing it, so I, you know, I'm just going to go with it first. It's a natural reaction that we have. And it's easy for us, right, sitting comfortably in our chairs, in the house of God, surrounded by other believers to say, well, you know, if I was there, I'd stand with him too. I wouldn't bow. It's a lot harder when it's the really unpopular thing. If there are thousands of people, if everyone around you is bowing and falling on their face, and you're not, you stand with your knees locked as these men do, because everyone would notice Instead of the attention being pointed to the statue and to the king and to his greatness, now the attention is on, wait, what, 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 what are you doing? Come on, bow down. You know, what, what do you think that people were saying to them? Sure, there were people who were mad at them even in the moment. We know there are people who were mad at them later. We can only guess. It doesn't tell us what they say, but, you know, we can imagine. Say, oh, come, come on, just, just bow down. Just go through the motions. You know what? None of us really want to do this. We don't like being here. I got things to do. But this is what the king wants to do. So come on, just, just fall down. You know, it, it really doesn't even mean anything. Say, so, you know, I don't want to worship this statue, guys. But the king says we got to. So I'm going to bow down. And, you know, just kind of go through the motions and, and pretend. And it makes him happy. Gets him off my back. So that's fine. Because I really doubt, you know, that everybody, all those thousands of people really thought, wow, this is amazing. I just can't wait to worship the statue today. I'm sure there are people there who were just annoyed or bothered or just went through it. It's what everyone else is doing. That's fine. They didn't, you know, think that they were actually worshiping. But you notice what it says in God's Word in 7. Well, all the peoples fell down and they worshiped. They might be convincing themselves that it's fine. They might not even be intending to be worshiping and just go through the actions. But the reality is that we don't get to determine what sin is. God does. And sin isn't determined by what you or I think or how, because we, we can rationalize anything and make anything okay. Or say, well, this is fine. I can bow down and worship this stuff, God. You don't understand. But God says, no. Everyone who is bowing down to this really was worshiping. 
And I'm sure they told him, you know, hey, it's not that big of a deal, guys. You know, maybe just, just worship a little bit for the greater good. You know, think about what you're giving up. Man, God puts you in, the, in this high spot. You guys are over all this stuff, over Babylon. Think about the great influence you have for your Jewish people. The influence you can have for God's kingdom. Think about all the great and good things you can do. But man, if you don't bow now, you're giving all of that up. There's so much good. So just do a little bit of evil so you can get this good. Maybe that's what people are saying. We, we don't know. But they chose not to. They did the unpopular thing because it was right. God's Word doesn't allow them to bow to idols, and so they won't, even though it's unpopular, even though everyone else around them is doing it, even though everyone probably wants them to do, even though there's enormous pressure to do so. They refuse and say, no, we're following God and God alone. And if we're honest, none of us really like to be unpopular, right? If you're here and you're a believer, I'm sure you love the Lord, you're following Him not just because it's the popular thing, but because you think He's worth following and obeying. But the reality is we don't really like to do it when it's unpopular. Some of us don't like being unpopular or weird. Some of you are very comfortable with that. Others of us are not. It's much more fun to be a follower of Jesus when everyone around you is a follower of Jesus. It's much more fun and easy to be a Christian when everyone around you is doing Christian things and likes Christian things. It's not so much fun when it's not popular anymore. It's not so much fun when people mock God or mock His Word or mock you for not bowing to the things of the world, and we don't like that. And there are some people who, when suddenly the crowd is not Christian anymore, they also walk away from the faith. Because they're, they're fine following God when it's easy, when it's popular, but suddenly when it's not, then, ah, I'm not sure it's really worth it. This costs too much. There are some who only like following Jesus when there's a crowd. But these three men, they respond like the disciples did. There was a moment when Jesus had all of the crowds, and he started teaching things that they didn't like to hear, and the crowds just left. And they thought, you know what? Maybe this Jesus guy isn't worth it. And Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, well, are you guys going to leave me too? I love their responses. Just, well, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's not, oh, of course. It's, man, I'd like to leave with the crowd, Jesus, but you... You're the only place that has eternal life. I'm, I'm following you. You're worth it. Following God's worth it even when it's unpopular. And for most of the history of the world, it's been unpopular to follow Jesus. And even in places where it's really popular and we really act like we're all following Jesus, it's still in that place unpopular to actually follow Jesus. Our, our second point is it's worth it to follow Jesus, not just when it's unpopular, but Jesus, God is worth following even when it's costly even when it's costly. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they're faced with a high cost of following God. And it begins, everyone's angry at them, right? Verse 8, certain Chaldeans come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. Specifically, they're accusing all of Daniel and his friends. Now, we may wonder quickly, well, where's Daniel here? Like, is Daniel not bowing down? Or is Daniel bowing down? How come he escapes this? Um, we don't really know. Our best assumption that we can guess um, is he's off traveling for the king somewhere else in the kingdom or in other places because he's not present. Um, but we can assume that he would be stand if he was around, he would be standing next to his friends, not bowing down to this idol. But so he's absent from here. But, and we don't know, too, why these guys are being malicious, because it, it tells us, you know, they come forward, they're maliciously accusing the Jews and these men. It's not just that they're saying, hey, we noticed. It's that they have some other motivation behind it. They're angry. We don't really know why. Maybe they're jealous, because they had to bow down and these guys didn't. 
Maybe they're upset because these guys are really elevated and have positions of power and authority and they don't. And so this is a political move to, you know, increase their own standing. I don't think it's religious reasons that they're really upset that their gods aren't being worshipped. I think it's much more selfish and sinful in some other way. So 12 of these guys come and they say, there are certain Jews you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. That's what, kind of why I think they're angry about who's being appointed. These guys are in charge of stuff. You should get rid of them. And these kings, they pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And they remind the king of the consequences in 10. King, you made a decree in 11. Whoever doesn't fall down and worship is cast into a burning fire. I said, king, you said whoever doesn't do this had to pay a high cost and I want these people to pay it. Cast them in is what they're asking. And his response is one of anger in 13. And Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought, right? It doesn't sound like he calmly requests them to be brought forward by name. It's okay, guys. Can you go find Shadrach, you know, Meshach, Abednego? Let's bring them here. Let's have a trial. Let's figure out what's going on. You can almost just picture him like in the scene just, just yelling. You know, his face is turning red. Veins are popping. He's just, go, go get him. Bring him here. He's angry. Let's get it done. You know, spit is spewing out from his mouth. He's furious at someone to defy his rule. So these men are brought in and questioned in 14 and begins. He just asks, you know, it seems like he's just asking if it's true. Nebuchadnezzar answered to them and said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you don't serve my gods or worship the image I've set up? Might kind of assume that, well, he's presuming their, their innocence. You know, he's having a nice, good trial. He's not assuming they're guilty right off the face, but we know he's angry. I don't think that's quite what's going on. It's really just a setup to a test. Because in the next verse in 15, okay, now if you're ready, so I want you to think about this, guys, because the band's about to play again. And I'm going to remind you in case you've forgotten of my command. When the band plays, you bow and you worship. And if you don't, the furnace is over there and that's where you're going. So the band is about to play, so why don't you take a moment to decide what you want to do. That's what the king is doing here. It reminds them, 15, if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. This is the cost of obedience to God instead of Babylon for them. Death. Right now, immediately. And it's not a fun death. You know, I don't know about you, this isn't a cost that I want to pay. If I had to think about or rank the worst ways to die, being burned alive would be pretty high on my list. That's why I stay away from fire, just in case, to be safe. You know, I haven't fixed our fireplace at our house, you know, just to just be overly cautious. It's definitely not because of laziness. It's, you know, something else going on. But Nebuchadnezzar, so he ends this, and I'm sure they don't want to die this way either. And Nebuchadnezzar ends this threat, and he taunts them and says, Who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands? He has this mocking statement about Yahweh's power. At the end of chapter 2, he praised God and said, Oh, Yahweh, you're the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But he's got a pretty short memory. This isn't the first and won't be the last time that he forgets God even after being shown his power. And so how do they respond to the idea of this cost, to this test, this thing placed before them? They have one of my favorite responses in all of Scripture in 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, and notice right away all of them answer. They don't break ranks. It's not two of them say the right thing and, and one of them falls away. It's not one stands strong, but the other two give up and bow. It's all three of them united and resolute with one voice. Speak. 
And together they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. So you, can, you don't have to do your test right now. You don't even have to play the band. We'll tell you what's going to happen. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. This is my favorite part. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we won't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In essence, their response is this. Yeah, you don't have to play it because we're not going to bow. And who can save us? Our God can. We know our God can. In fact, our God is going to deliver you, deliver us out of your hand. But you know what? He can save us from that fire you've got. We've seen him work miracles. We've heard story after story through the generations of how our God has been faithful and showed up to save his people. We know that our God's greater than your false gods. We know that our God's the only true God. But you know what? He might not deliver us from that fire. And that's fine. If we perish in that flame, God will deliver us from death and the life to come. And the best part is just that, that if not, their, their faith and their expectation isn't in that God will save them. They don't step into that furnace expecting a miracle to happen. They step into it expecting to die, expecting it to be the end. Maybe they have some hope, but they don't go into it saying, well, our God's definitely going to save us, just you watch. It's, our God can save us. I hope he does. He might. But you know what? If not, we're willing to die now in that way. They're willing to obey and follow God no matter the cost. They're following God without any expectation of deliverance from the flames. And Nebuchadnezzar is more than happy to oblige. 19, and Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He changes as they talk. The longer they go on, the more his face just twists and gets angry. There's some quiet listening to rage again. And out of that rage, he orders the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated and orders some of the mighty men of his army to bind them and to cast them into the fiery furnace. He wants it even hotter than normal. It's not enough just for them to die because of their defiance. He wants it even worse, which is kind of absurd and humorous anyway, as if they're going to burn more or die more now than they would have died before because the fire is seven times hotter. I mean, still fire, still throwing them in there. Like they're going to burn one way or another. Maybe you're speeding it up a little bit, but it's just ridiculous. But it just shows how hot this thing is. And these men, they're bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and all their other garments and thrown. And because of the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, because of his foolishness, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the people, these mighty men of the king, who are taking them to throw them into the furnace, those men catch on fire and die quickly. And then the three fall in, which is not what you expect. You wonder, well, why is it mentioning their cloaks and their tunics and their, their hats and their other garments? That's a lot of stuff that's pretty flammable. It's a lot of fancy robes and fancy hats and scarves and things and fires coming and it catches these other three guys and yet you would expect that these clothes would be burned because they've got tons of them. They're not going in there naked. And yet, it doesn't. Instead, the men throwing them into the fire die and our three heroes fall in presuming that they will die. They fall into that heat expecting only death, I think, and they're willing to die. It's almost humorous that they're bound. 
Because they told the king, we're, we're happy to go in. They're not trying to get away. They're not trying to run. They're not fighting guards and resisting, trying to get out and say, no, please. They're not begging for mercy. They're willing to follow God no matter the cost. They might have been willing to jump into the fire. Why? Because they think following God is worth their very lives. Question for us is, you know, are, are we really only following God when it's convenient and when it costs us nothing? We really only to f- willing to follow God as long as everyone does it, as long as, you know, it won't cost me too much, as long as my obedience is easy. You know, it's really easy for me to obey some of those commands of God. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. That's really easy for me usually to obey that when it's, you know, the people I like, loving the neighbors that are nice to me that I see. Not so easy to love my enemies. That costs me a little bit more. There are plenty of things that God commands us to do that is easy for us to do, and there are things that God commands that are costly, and those are the times we find out if we're really willing to obey God or not. Are we willing to obey Him even when it costs us something and isn't easy? Our last point is the, one of the biggest reasons it's worth it to follow God. God is worth following because He's with us. God is worth following because He is with us. Something miraculously happens immediately when these men fall into the fire. And it's so miraculous that Nebuchadnezzar notices it immediately in 24. So right away in 24, the king is astonished after they fall. And he rises up in haste because he can't believe what he's seen. He jumps off of his throne out of his chair to go and look. And he declares to his counselors, didn't we cast three men into the fire? They say, yeah, yeah. Because he's confused by what his eyes see. He's asking for a body count. He's saying, okay, I know we took some guards with them to throw them in, and some of them died. Can we count the bodies? How many of them died? Did one of them maybe fall in there accidentally? What's happening? Because I, I see something. And we see why he's astonished next. He answered, and he said, but I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. You know, they were tied up, but now they're free. And they're not running around like they're on fire. They look like they're just having a stroll. They're not burned to dust and ash and have disappeared. They, They seem like they're just walking around. And someone else is with them. Now, who could this be? There seems to only be two options. This is either a a divine angel sent by God, or this is a Christophany, which is a fancy word to mean a a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Now, the text doesn't tell us, and that shouldn't be surprising, right? Because at this point, God's people and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they are hoping for the Messiah to come and to save them. But they don't yet understand completely that the Messiah is actually going to be God himself. They have hope for salvation. They hope the Messiah is coming, but they don't understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And so there's two reasons I think that this is Jesus. The first one is Nebuchadnezzar identifies and says, you know, it looks like a son of the gods. Through the mouth of this pagan king who misses it over and over, we see some truth. Because Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God himself, but he also is 
as the second person of the Trinity. And the king wonders, you know, what God could save these men, and now that very God is walking around the flames with them, saving them. Well, who can do it? He's here right in front of you. You're getting to look at him, Nebuchadnezzar. That's the God that can save them. The second reason I think that this is, uh, I think this is Jesus, is if you go back to Isaiah 43, if you want to flip over there in your Bible scan, this is our call to worship um, this morning. This is a prophecy given to exiles by Isaiah, telling them of the promises of God. You're about to go into Babylon and to go into the other nations, and I want you to remember this. We, we read it once during our call to worship, and we'll read it again. You know, at the beginning of verse 1, you know, fear not. Don't fear when you're there, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name and you're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. That would remind them of the way that God has saved them through the waters as they cross through the Red Sea and God made the waters part. As they cross through the Jordan River and with Joshua and they passed over on dry land. And then when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It's a promise that God gives, and it's one that He actually, I think, fulfills literally here. Because He delivers them from the flames. They walk, they walk through fire, and they're not burned. And the flame, it consumes the other men, but it doesn't consume them. Now, on one level, this is a promise that God gives to all of His people that He won't abandon them, even as they walk through suffering and hardship. But on another level, I think it was a prophetic promise to these three men, even if they didn't realize it till afterwards. I can't help but wonder, maybe, there's no way to know this, if these verses were on the back of their mind, if they thought about the prophecies of Isaiah. We don't know, but we do know that they believed that God saw them and that God was with them, and they believed that God would deliver them. And our God is not just with them in spirit, right? He's not just with them in the sense that he, in the way that our omnipresent God is present everywhere all the time. He Instead here, I think that Jesus is in the flames walking around next to them, beside them. Can you imagine what that moment must have felt like for them? Okay, the terror and joy, I don't like falling, but so being cast and falling down into the flames, assuming you're going to die, and then some moments go by, and you think, well, okay, maybe I'm just in shock, I don't feel it yet. And then some more moments go by, and you go, well, everything seems okay. Don't feel hot. I'm not on fire. That probably had to be pretty joy and relief and confusing, and then enters Jesus to take their hand. Maybe Jesus or this angel is the one who unties their bonds. And you just get to walk around and talk in the flames. The miracle isn't just that God delivered them from this, the, um, just delivered them safe from the flames. The miracle is that God walks in it with them. He is present in the midst of their trial, in the midst of their suffering, and their punishment from the world. And when Nebuchadnezzar calls them out, they come out. And fire hadn't any power over the bodies of these men. The hair on their heads was not singed. Their clothes aren't harmed. They're all fine. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Just the smell itself is miraculous. You can't be around a fire without smelling like it for a while. Right? Even if you're, just, you're, you're around a bonfire for a bit, you've got to come home and you've got to wash those clothes soon because they're going to smell like smoke for quite a while. Their clothes don't smell like smoke. 
Their clothes smell normal. Nebuchadnezzar's might smell like smoke, but theirs don't. But with God, this miracle can happen. And Nebuchadnezzar, he praises Yahweh and he declares, no other God is able to rescue in this way. He acknowledges that this, this seems that this could have only happened by God. And he promotes them in 30. He, he promotes them even higher in power. And then he sends out this proclamation. And I think the beginning of chapter 4, those first three verses, are that proclamation that gets sent out. Um, it, I, I think is what's going on there. And where he commands them, you know, peace be to you, and I'm going to show you and tell you about the wonders, that, the signs and wonders the Most High God has done, and how great are his signs, and how mighty his wonders, and his kingdom is everlasting, and his dominion endures. You know, this is a wonderful, happy ending for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, but this is not how they thought it would end at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 3. They didn't resist the empire and resist the king because they knew that God would save them and they'd get a promotion. They didn't resist thinking this will be good. There's going to be more money in my bank account and more power and influence and it'll be good. I can do the right thing anyway. It'll be fun. Maybe then I'll be in the, you know, be in the, the Bible and people will read about me thousands of years from now. No, they resisted assuming that they would die and maybe no one would ever know their names. But they put their faith and trust in God. Why? They thought that God was worth it. And they believed that God would be with them even in the midst of their suffering. And we can know that God is with us even here today. We can know that God is with us in our suffering because our God suffered himself. Our Jesus, second person of the Trinity, when he came down to earth, he suffered. He suffered in many ways, and he suffered greatly. He lived a human life, and a human life, you can't be a human being without escaping suffering in one way or another. If you have any kind of relationships or if you even know people or live at all, you will be surrounded and see it. And on the cross, particularly, he suffered greatly. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was, had his eyes covered and beaten and mocked. The crown of thorns that went over his head. His back was stripped bare by whips. He was stripped naked and nailed to that piece of wood. As he had to hang there and pull himself up for every breath as his torn back pulled against the splinters of that raw wood. Our God knows what it is to suffer. And why did he suffer? He suffered for us. For you and, and for me. He suffered in order to save us and deliver us from our sins. He didn't just suffer to, you know, come and show some solidarity with us. He didn't just suffer to be a good example. He suffered in order to bring us salvation. In order to deliver us. And this is part of our, our gospel hope, right? We don't believe that Jesus died on the cross in order to make us rich. We believe that Jesus suffered and died so that now all of our sickness can be healed if we just have enough faith. We believe that Jesus came down and died and gave us faith and, and deliverance and salvation so that we can be leaders and in charge of the world. So we can be important and popular. We believe that Jesus came and died for us, for our sin, 
And he was raised back to life in order to give us hope. And our hope is not in deliverance in this world. Our hope is not, we don't declare, or, or we do declare like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know what? Our God might not deliver us in this world here today. Suffering might come and get me. Sickness may claim me. Death probably will get me here in this life. But my God will deliver me. Our God will deliver us from death and suffering, but it won't be here. It will be when He returns. And we may have to walk through death. Unless the Lord returns, all of us will, though we don't know when. How often it comes when we don't want it and when we least expect it. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can fall face first into death. And on the other side, there will be Jesus waiting for us. There may be suffering. There may be a cost to following Christ here, but it is worth it. Because our hope is not on this side of eternity. Our hope is in the God of eternity and the God whose nation, whose kingdom lasts forevermore. And we can follow and worship that God even in the suffering today because we know He's not just waiting for us on the other side. He is here with us now. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in your very body. That God is with you at every moment. When you suffer, it's not because God has abandoned with you. You suffer with God alongside you. And you suffer with a God who knows what it is to suffer. And with a God who one day will take all suffering away. Now our God is, our God is worth following. He's worth following even when it's unpopular, even when it's costly. He's worth following because He's with us. He's with us now and He will be with us in the life to come if you put your faith and trust in Him. So whatever hardship you're facing today, remember that God is with you. Whatever trial, whatever death, whatever suffering it is, even now, God is with you. Don't turn back. Hold on to the hope, beloved. Hold on a little more. This isn't the end. We can keep our eyes on Him because He is worth it. Bow our heads in prayer and invite our, our team to come up and lead us in worship and song once more. Lord, I ask that we would believe that you are worth it. Lord, would you, would you change the scales in our minds and in our hearts? Lord, would you help us be willing to follow you no matter the cost, no matter if it's unpopular, no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter the suffering? Lord, would we obey and honor you and you alone? Would we not bow to the gods of this world? And Lord, would you be with us when the flames of life come to burn us? When suffering and hardship come, Lord, would you be with us? Would you remind our hearts that you are here, that you will never leave, never leave us, and will never forsake us in this life or in the age to come? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our God in song once more. 
Hear this benediction from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace.